Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Hemant Metta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Keith Devlin is a mathematician who is also known as the math guy on NPR's Weekend Edition. He's written several books explaining math to the masses. And he's the co-founder and executive director of Stanford University's Human Sciences and Technologies Advanced Research Institute, better known as HSTAR. Uh, Keith, thank you for joining us. And can you explain to us what HSTAR actually is? Besides what should yeah, be your yeah, rap to name. Be with you. <laughs> Besides your rap name, which yeah. it should no, be. No, yeah. your rap name. Um, My rap name, too. Yes. <laughs> it's one of these classic academic titles. The, the letters HSTAR stand for Human Sciences and Technologies Advanced Research. And it's an institute, a multidisciplinary institute, that does research and suggested by the name. It's, it's research that involves the human sciences um, but also with technology. So we, sp- we, we basically fund research and we support research at Stanford. It's all Stanford internal research, although we do collaborate with, with, with universities and governments all around the world. But we deal with research that intrinsically involves both the human sciences and, and the natural sciences, uh, engineering um, and technology. So I have a pretty basic question for you. I mean, I majored in math. I taught math yep. for several years. I'm pretty decent in math. And yet when I've seen math research papers or anything like that, <laughs> I am so lost. Why yeah. Why is math so hard? I mean, I'm not bad at math, but it, I, I'm totally lost when it comes to advanced stuff. And I know I've taught so many students yeah. who have trouble grasping what I now consider the basic stuff. What is it about math that makes it so hard for some people? Uh, it actually changed quite dramatically about the middle of, well, starting in the early 19th century, but predominantly during the 19th century, it changed into an extremely abstract discipline. Uh, it went off in many different sub-directions, each one uh, getting increasingly abstract, certainly built on the basic ideas. But those basic ideas of sort of algebra and arithmetic and geometry and trigonometry and so forth, and then calculus from the 17th century. Those, in some sense, had been worked out. They had been well worked out. They were full of applications. But each of those and various other disciplines in mathematics led to sub-disciplines, and those sub-disciplines led to sub-disciplines. And as mathematicians went out on these various tracks, these, these different paths, and bifurcated their interests, it got more and more abstract. The notations got more abstract. So that today, someone like me, who's been a professional mathematician all my, all my life, um, I, I, the, 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 I got my PhD by going down one track and going down a long way till I got to the frontiers. Um, but, I, but by that stage, when I got a PhD and people regarded me as a professional mathematician, which indeed I was, I was making money doing it, 
I could no longer understand the mathematics done by my colleagues down the corridor because <laughs> they'd gone down a different path. So uh, the, the, the way you feel about it, Hermans, and, and most people feel about it, I feel about other branches of mathematics. When, when Andrew Wiles solved Fermat's last theorem in 1994, um, because I know him vaguely, I know him a little bit better now, I was able to get a... I actually got a signed copy of his paper, which, which is that one is of our treasured possessions. Absolutely awesome. But, but I opened it... And I couldn't get beyond about three or four <laughs> sentences down the first page. Um, it was clear that as a professional, if I was willing to devote maybe a year of my life to learning that branch of mathematics, I could probably begin to understand it. But it was as alien to me as, 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 as any branch of modern mathematics would be to a layperson. Uh, so it's, it's, it's the same in the field as it is to someone outside the field. For someone like Andrew Wiles, who is known as this great mathematician who solves one of the great mathematical problems, I mean, it sounds like what made him so powerful and what makes him so powerful, he is grabbing math from so many different frontiers, uh, to use your word, and bringing them together and finding connections no one else did. How is he Uh, able, I don't know if that's right or not, but how is he able to draw around, how is he able to figure these things out that... It wasn't really many different fields. The the thing that happened, and there was an element of luck in this one, was it turned, there were two fields of mathematics uh, that for various reasons, accidents of advisors and who we'd been working with, there were two branches of mathematics, two distinct ones that were actually thought to be very different that he knew very well. It turned out that the solution to Fermat's last theorem required the marriage of those two branches of mathematics. So he was almost unique in being a master of the very two areas of mathematics that needed to be brought together. That's happened in other disciplines, other other proofs as well in mathematics. Um, Very often what's happening these days is when a problem has resisted solution for many years, it turns out that no single discipline is enough to solve it. You need to marry two disciplines. And the mathematicians who have done this have been mathematicians who have known those two disciplines. I'm not sure if there are many or any mathematicians who are masters of three different branches of mathematics. And it may well be that some of the unsolved problems of mathematics may require mastery of three branches of mathematics. And we may not ever have such a mathematician today. Now, we used to many years ago. I mean, Euler um, back in the 1700s was, was renowned for being a master of many of what were then the, the, the leading branches of mathematics. But today, you cannot be another Euler. You can't master all of the branches. You can, there are a few mathematicians who have masters of two of the branches. And as I say, I don't know if there's anyone that's mastered three. So we may have maxed out on the kind of theorems we can prove now. So the the idea you kind of spoke about how the paths of math have gotten further and more complicated, does that mean somebody who's, say, in high school today who wants to major in math is going to have a harder time getting to that frontier because there's no. so much more um, path to go? Well, it depends on which, um, which branch of mathematics you choose. Uh, first of all, there's new branches of mathematics opening up all the time. So the uh, when, when I was a graduate student in the uh, late 1960s, early 70s, uh, I went into a branch of mathematics which had only been opened up four or five years earlier. And so there was still plenty of results to do. It only took me maybe a, six months to get to the frontiers of that discipline. And that's still the case today. So that the smart people who really want to sort of make a career mm. will choose new mathematicians. There are many cases, by the way, of, of very smart people becoming graduate students. They talk to their potential advisor and they say, I want to work in number theory because it's been going for hundreds of years. And the advisor will say, well, you know, you can if you want, 
But if you want to get a PhD in four or five years, you'd better put that you'd better put that to one side, work on something else, get your PhD, and then if you still want to do number theory, say, move back into number theory. Um, and, and so you have to negotiate your way through this field. But mathematics is constantly growing, and if you're in a new a new area of mathematics, then the frontier is only maybe six months away. Okay, um, I'm really sorry to be dense, and I hope I'm <laughs> speaking for some of the listeners because I'm sitting across from a math teacher. I'm talking to a mathematician. Uh, I was a literature major with an incomplete dance minor, so like, yeah. I, I hope okay. I'm speaking for more people. What when you say branches of math, what, what I don't know what that means. Can you give me examples of branches of math? And I'm so okay. sorry to be so basic. I'm okay, just no, trying that, to like begin to access this conversation. The ones that are familiar to most people are things like. Arithmetic, geometry, trigonometry, uh, different parts of mathematics. Um, (laughs) Then, of course, there was calculus, probability theory. Today, there are things like sort of um, dynamical systems, which is related to fractals. Uh, There's branches of mathematics being developed in connection with with biology. There's lots of branches of mathematics came out in connection with physics. Uh, But they're just these different sub-disciplines that in the case of of a high school, would be a, maybe a topic, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the teacher will say, this week we're going to study trigonometry. Sure. Next week we'll do a geometry. Those are branches of mathematics. Okay. So what yeah. did you study? Uh, so as sorry. a graduate student, I studied, a, in the general term, is I studied something which at the beginning of the 20th century would have been called logic, mathematical logic. But by the time I came into it, in the 1960s, logic had already split up into six or seven sub-disciplines, and I picked a discipline called set theory. And set theory had split up into several sub-disciplines as well. I worked on something called axiomatic set theory, and, in, and, it, and within axiomatic set theory in 1963, a new sub-discipline sprung up <laughs> called indep- independence proofs. And I was within five years of the splitting up so i got into this whole area known as independence proofs are that there math are there math schisms between the independent you know like set gangs? <laughs> yes like religious sex just in the sharks uh, not really although <laughs> when you when you're outside one of these things the people down the corridor if you walk into one of their seminar rooms and you listen to them you might just as well have been going into some strange sect where they have these strange rituals and strange terminology. You don't even know what the words mean. Very often, they're using words that are familiar, but after five minutes, you realize that they use those words to mean something very different. Yeah, I mean, I was totally on board when we were talking about, like, geometry. I know what that is. And then literally the next thing you said is like, I don't know, I'm but done. One of the <laughs> things about these, the when you go down these <laughs> pathways and stuff, the question I get from high school students all the time, of course, is when are we going to use this in life? And at yeah. least at the high school level, for most of the classes, I can answer that question in most in most classes. Sure. But when yeah. you're talking about going down these pathways, I mean, like you said, so much of this is abstract. Where yeah. is this just a matter of, you know, this is just a fun intellectual exercise or is this stuff applicable? Uh, for those of us that do it, it's almost always the motivation is it's a fun intellectual exercise. In fact, when I went into mathematical logic, it was regarded as one of the least potentially applicable branches of mathematics of all time. I went to this thing called abstract set theory, people which was dealing with infinite sets of, uh, of strange higher order infinities. That was all thought to be completely irrelevant. Post 9-11, I found myself working for the CIA 
on trying to improve intelligence analysis. And why did they ask me to join? Because someone at the CIA had read my stuff. I think people at the CIA follow me all the time these days, actually, <laughs> uh, and the NSA even more so. But the CIA, someone had read one of some of my papers, and they said, this, this, what this guy's doing might be relevant to us as we try to improve intelligence analysis. So within a few weeks of 9-11, I was working on this big national project. It, was not, it wasn't classified. I mean, I can talk about it without having to kill you afterwards. <laughs> uh, it was purely uh, using the ideas. It wasn't using the specifics of infinite sets that I'd done my work on but it was using the thought processes. And that's usually the case. This is really the answer that you can give to, uh, to the students. Almost any branch of mathematics, the actual problems you're working on are probably not the kind of problems that would crop up in real-world examples. But the kind of thinking you develop to work on those problems can and very often is extremely valuable in the real world. And in my case, it turned out that the kind of thinking I'd been doing to work on these problems of infinite abstract sets turned out to be just one of the things that was required to understand the complexities of trying to do intelligence analysis in a global world. I got to say, of all the ways I've ever thought about dying... <laughs> Someone being killed by someone who's been on NPR has never crossed yeah, yeah, yeah. my mind. I really feel like we kind of buried the lead that we got to CIA ten minutes into an interview. We need to there make sure go. we put that yeah. in the show yeah, notes. Sorry, we'll put that yeah, in the show yeah. notes. CIA. I mean, I will. They'll never uh, come after us. Hammond, to your yeah, listen to this program and then they'll have to be killed after. <laughs> right, exactly. right. Hammond, yeah. to your point though, like I got started in the the current job I have. I'm I'm a writer by trade, yeah. and then I kind of moved yeah. on, and I use algebra every day. And I yeah. wish I could go back to like 16-year-old Jessica and be like, dude, pay attention for like yeah. five yeah. minutes. Future Jess will love you. Yeah. See, here's a question I have just yeah. about uh, mathematics in general. Yeah. Uh, there are mathematical developments, new papers being written all the time. Yep. And if I and the same thing happens with science research papers as well. And one of the things that happens is if you open up, you know, a good newspaper, a good website that is talking about these things. They will talk about the scientific advances. I'm not saying yeah. they always do it well, but they talk yeah. about the right, scientific right, right. advances all the time. This is what a new research paper shows. Uh -huh. Psychology. This is what a new research paper Wine shows. Why make you live longer? No one yeah. ever talks about mathematics. Is it just because it's so complicated Wait, to understand and explain? What are the papers about? Like, I know, God, I know <laughs> that's a terrible question. All of these different branches, people are coming up with new results all the time. They post their papers online, yeah. but you and, never hear about them. And is yeah. it just because there's three people? in the world who understand what this, what's going on anyway? So. The real problem is that we don't, have, we don't have these very simple visual metaphors that you have in the other side. For example, in physics, um, you know, no one, I mean, not even physicists know what matter looks like and consists of. I mean, you know, there's these, but they have these metaphors like, uh, well, first of all, there's the, the atomic, model, the classic model of the atom, mm -hmm. the billiard ball model, or the, the planetary system, where you've got a nucleus and you've got these electrons floating around. You know, the atom doesn't look remotely like that. It doesn't look like anything. And yet that's a nice metaphor to have in mind. Sure. Or Brian Greene talks about spring theory. And he talks about these, these little loops of vibrating spring, strings. Well, because string theory no, is so accessible. Yeah, <laughs> but, but, it's so, yeah, but you've got the metaphors, and so you've got these physical metaphors, and they actually prove quite useful. Mathematics, the metaphors themselves are abstract, <laughs> so you can't even talk about them in terms of the but, real world. Can you, you can talk sort about... of somehow come close. I mean, I've, you know, the reason I got on the, uh, I became the math guy is it turned out that through an accident of birth or the way I think, some of my metaphors actually can be sort of visualised. I once talked about... 
um, gravitational pull by talking about uh, rafting down a river, where you're rafting down a river and you come to the rapids and there's two rivers go off and you're in the middle of the rapids and then you're in a stable, an unstable equilibrium, which means a small, a small push with the oars can send you either careering off to the left or careering off to the right. Now, I use that metaphor to talk about unstable equilibriums with sort of planetary systems. Um, and so you can sometimes use these sort of everyday metaphors, but most mathematics, even when you use an everyday metaphor, it's at least as misleading as it is helpful. So the trouble is we don't have these visual, simply visualizable metaphors for most mathematics. Can you talk about applications of the mathematics or is even that too abstract? Uh, uh, you can try it, but that's also it's for many. For most of mathematics, it's it's misleading too. The uh, you know one of the favourite ones. I, I in, a few years ago there was a thing called the Poincaré conjecture that was was solved by by a, a Russian mathematician called Perelman, and it was it was an interesting news story for various reasons. But when people talked about the the Poincaré conjecture. They ended up talking about the difference between a coffee cup and a donut and the difference between a, a ring donut and a jam donut. And, and as a mathematician who understands the, the, the Poincaré conjecture, I knew what those metaphors meant. But from talking to people, and, and you know, I give lots of popular talks, so I do talk to people, it was clear that when I was using that metaphor in a knowledgeable way, I was at least as likely to be misleading people as I was helping them. So I think even the simple metaphors only make sense to the people who really understand the mathematics and don't need them. And this is one of the problems that I find very fascinating about mathematics, because if you're talking about the Poincaré conjecture and, yeah. and Perlman, the the one thing I can tell you about that story, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. Perlman got... A, got a lot prize money because he yeah. solved an unsolvable problem and yeah. he said i don't want your money and that's, right. that's what i know about the guy but this is the thing about mathematicians the new york times not too long ago ran this great profile on terence tau one of the greatest yeah. living mathematicians right now but it's yeah. all about his life uh -huh. And yes. it's very little about the math because the math yeah. is too hard yeah. so let's talk Absolutely. about how yeah. awesome the guy is and yeah, this is versus what like scientists versus you can the talk actual about their math. discoveries yeah. and we scientists, talk about Darwin, we talk about evolution. I couldn't tell you about the life stories of all the scientists who do these cool experiments, sure. but I can right. tell you the life stories of some of the mathematicians because that's all I can ac access. You yeah, know? And that's, that, that, that really is a new story. It's what I do on NPR. It's what I do in many cases. It's what mathematicians do. We, we talk about the people because, you know, everyone's, everyone likes stories. Human beings are storytellers. We understand the world in terms of stories. And so... Um, in the, when you've got something that's completely inaccessible, shift gear and talk about the mathematicians. And the mathematicians are they are interesting intrinsically just because they're mathematicians, for one thing. They do this weird stuff that nobody else understands. So that already makes them a sort of an interesting case. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is a problem with journalists or a problem, not a problem, but like this is an issue with math, where if only there were journalists that better understood math, we might actually get a better understanding of what's going on here? Or is just that's not going to happen in the same way a great science writer can really elucidate what's going on? It's, I mean, the reason some people like myself, Ed Frankel, one or two other people, Stephen Strogatz, you know, the, you look at the people who are sort of science journalists on the radio and the magazines, the newspapers, we're all people with, we are professional mathematicians. So really what's happened is a small number of us that are in the business have stepped up to the plate and done the science journalism. Even when you look at these mathematicians like Erica Claridge and one or two others that are professional journalists, they have PhDs in mathematics. 
Uh, UC Santa Cruz, many years ago, started a journalism school to teach science journalism to people with PhDs. And a whole bunch of people came forward um, and sort of gave up the academic research career and became journalists. So the only people who write science journalism for mathematics now are either professionals like myself who do it on the side or they're people who have been professional mathematicians who switched and became, became journalists. Uh, but without a PhD in mathematics, it's almost impossible to write good mathematics journalism because you just don't have the, the internal understanding of the subject. How do you approach a subject if you if you know certain branches of mathematics very well? Uh, yeah. Can you tell us about a time when you tried to cover, you know, a brand new branch of mathematics for you? Uh, what's your process of trying to figure out, you know, how to explain it to the to, to people who know nothing about oh, yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. In fact, in two thousand, when the uh, the uh, the Clear Mathematics Institute started instituted the the Millennium Problems, this was the year two thousand. The Clear Mathematics Institute offered this prizes. They said they they picked seven of the most difficult unsolved problems of mathematics. They called them the Millennium Problems. Each one of them was given a million dollar prize. Uh, the Poincaré conjecture, by the way, was one of those problems. That was the the first and only one so far to have been solved. Um, but these prizes were announced in two thousand because I've got a track record as a science writer. Um, several publishers approached me and said, would I write a popular book on the Millennium Problems? And I said, look, I know books. two of the problems. <laughs> yeah, I understand two of them. I don't know anything <laughs> about the other five. Um, uh, and I said, it would take too long. Well, they tri- twisted my arm. They, they flattered me. They did all the usual <laughs> things, took me out to dinner. And eventually I said, OK, I'll write this book. And so then I was faced with the reality of having to learn five new branches of mathematics to explain these problems. Uh, and it did actually take me the best part of a year. It was great fun. Um, and I, I, I had the benefit that I was able to talk to people who did understand it. So what I did was I, I got in touch with experts in those domains and was able to talk to them. And the fact is, if you're, a, if you're an expert in one branch of mathematics, it's not that difficult to get a good general sense of a different part of mathematics, a different branch of mathematics. You won't be able to work in it, but you will be able to follow what they do and understand it because... It's not that different. There's a lot of differences in the particulars, but the general approach to mathematics is such that if you've mastered one area of mathematics, you can actually get a pretty good understanding in the sense of, uh, of, of an understanding, not being able to do it, of a different branch of mathematics. Um, can I ask another dumb question? I'm just, I'm full of them tonight. Um, when we say that there's unsolvable problems, what does that mean i know that's uh, well, such actually, a stupid question no, I'm no, there's, there's so actually, uh, we actually use two words we talk about unsolved problems an unsolved problem unsolved is a problem, problem that's been raised and no one has yet solved it uh, an example would have been uh the twin well actually still unsolved let's go back to fermat's last theorem fermat's <laughs> last theorem until 1994 that was one of the most famous unsolved problems of mathematics after Andrew Wiles proved it, proved it solved it. It's now a solved theorem. It's now a theorem. And so that's um, the one that I can explain yeah. to my high school students because yeah. I did. Yeah. So you can explain and it to me. And it's basically saying we all know the Pythagorean theorem, A squared right. plus B squared equals C squared. Yeah. Well, what right. if it wasn't squared? What if it was a bigger number? What if it's cubed? What if it's to the fourth or okay. any number bigger than that? Right. Is there any yeah. solution to that? Yeah. And then, so, but, so, so that was an unsolved problem. That's now a solved problem. There's another class of problems that are called unsolvable problems. These are problems where mathematicians have been able to prove conclusively that that problem cannot be solved. 
Um, in fact, that's what I did my PhD on. The methods for doing that were developed in the 1960s, actually here at Stanford, by, by a, a, a deceased colleague of mine, uh, Paul Cohen. He developed a, a branch of mathematics, uh, a set of techniques that allowed you to go in and look at a problem that had been an unsolved problem and show that, in fact, it could not be solved. And what happened following his results was a whole group of us, maybe 100 mathematicians got their PhDs, by going through the literature, looking at problems that were unsolved, and proving that they were unsolvable. Um, and is that really an advance? I mean, to, yeah. if you say, hey, we didn't know the answer to this, but now we know the answer. The answer is there's no solution. We can't figure this out. Is that yeah. actually helpful? Oh, yeah, because it means you'd be completely wasting your time trying to, trying to solve it. You know, I mean, a classic case would be squaring the circle. You know, as a well-known mathematician, I get these, these papers sent to me fairly regularly about squaring the circle. Uh, and, you know, you know, that's been known for hundreds of years that it's, you cannot square the circle. Um, knowing that you cannot square the circle means that no professional mathematician would waste an, a moment of their time trying to prove that you could square the circle because, you know, it's impossible. Now, amateurs don't understand the distinction between unsolved you and unsolvable. <laughs> so, they're, they're, so, so people keep wasting, literally wasting their time trying to solve problems which are known to be unsolvable. So we can at least save time if we could say, yeah. We can one, save time. Don't it's, a, do it's, this it's, one. A, it's a positive result. It actually, what it, what it does is it says this particular question is beyond the power of mathematics. Mathematics cannot solve all the problems that look like mathematical problems. You know, it's, it's, I mean, what else is new? I mean, in most walks of life, people accept that you can't solve all the problems. You know, if we could, we'd have solved the problems in the Middle East a long time ago. They're getting worse. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, but, but in that case, I guess people would be very pessimistic if they said it's unsolvable. What most people will say is we haven't figured out how to solve it yet. Why, why do people take so much pride almost in saying, oh, I'm not good at math? Like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't calculate the tip. That's too complicated for me. I was never good in math. They say that with a sort of like, eh, this is not a big deal. But they would Same never like, say... Oh, I don't really read. But they would. They don't yeah. say, I don't... Oh, they might say, I don't really read. But no one would ever say, I'm I illiterate. I can't read. I can't read. Yeah, but they could say, I can't do math. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, well, that's probably because they don't realize that when someone says that to a mathematician, we think, what a jerk. What yeah. a Philistine. What an ignorant person who doesn't even know that they are a Philistine. Because if there's a walk, you know, you know, you're a Philistine, if there's a part of human culture that you are proud not to be aware of, I, I would be horrified. I would never dream of saying it. I don't know anything about music or literature or whatever. I mean, you know, and if I was ignorant, I would fake it, right? I mean, because I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to be thought ignorant. Yeah. And so it's a bizarre attitude that people say there's this area of human thought that's been going for thousands of years some of the greatest minds have contributed to it there's this whole body of literature and i know nothing about it well <laughs> what you said to me is you're a philistine <laughs> and i don't always tell them that to their face but that's, yeah, that's probably a good idea so <laughs> so tracing it back like i remember my elementary school math classes junior high math classes being like less than compelling so what can we do to get kids and young adults more interested in math? Oh, there's a couple of things. I mean, I, you know, my own particular research over the last 10 years has been in developing video games to help math people learn mathematics because when there you do go. mathematics in a video game, you're doing it in a different way. 
you know, and almost, you know, any of these, I mean, I, I played World of Warcraft for many years. World of <laughs> Warcraft was, was out and out a mathematics game. It was about statistics, probability, optimization. Mm. It was using mathematical techniques all the time. It's just that the game was designed to sort of make it feel differently. And yet people who did well in World of Warcraft were solving math problems either singly or in groups. Um, so that's one way you could go. The other way is, uh, and, and you know, game learning is, is, is a growing field, but it's in a separate domain at the moment. The other way is just basing mathematical problems. Oh, he said, with modern computers, the reason mathematical problems were these sort of silly things about trains leaving stations was people had to give problems <laughs> that could be solved without any computational aid. You had to be able to solve it in 20 minutes using nothing more than a sort of a ruler and maybe a, uh, you know, paper and pencil calculation and oh, laser sure. or a hand calculator. With modern computers, you know, you, got, you carry around with your iPhone or whatever, so much computing power that there's no reason why you can't give people real problems that are interesting. You know, like, what is the likelihood that the train you're travelling on is going to have a couple of terrorists on it? You know, uh, uh, you know what's the likelihood that there'll be a terrorist and three American soldiers, et cetera, that can sort of protect us? So... With modern techniques, you can find all of the data on the internet within a few minutes and you can work the problem mathematically and the computation would be too difficult to do by hand, but you can do it automatically. So simply by giving people problems that are relevant to them, you know, travelling on a train is relevant if you're about to go to Europe and travel on a train, you'd be interested. If you're not, you could look at, you know, the likelihood of an outcome of an election or a sporting event or mm -hmm. anything whatsoever... Mathematics is everywhere. We can suck these problems out of the real world, use real-world data, and still do the mathematics. Uh, it is funny that I taught, of, yeah. I taught algebra, <laughs> I taught uh, trigonometry, a lot of things in between. And you would always get the, when are we going to use this yeah, question. Yeah. But when I taught, yeah. like, advanced placement statistics, that question yeah. never came up. Yeah, but a everything... kid who's in advanced placement statistics isn't going to ask a dick question oh, like that. Those, oh, trust me. Honors kids ask the really? dickiest questions. But it's because <laughs> they everything we did in statistics was a, you know, real question. Mm. And it's yeah. everyone saw where the application was. And yeah. that made it interesting. It was also interesting as a shift in when I was teaching, which is we were getting... Uh, I want to see less computation because we have the tools for that. Right. And I want you to write out an explanation. Like, what's your thought process for this? Sure. Uh, explain yeah. this to a five-year-old. That's mm -hmm. a more interesting yeah. question to me than just solve this problem. Well, I think an interesting yeah. question would be, so obviously we think like basic addition, subtraction, multiplication is absolutely something everybody should be able to use. And on the other side of that, like statistics or using a calculator properly is something that is useful. What about, like, should we still be teaching kids, like, long division, even though, realistically, they're not going to have to use long division? Like, no. they're going to have to use addition. They're going to have to use multiplication. They have to figure out tip percentages, 20%. <laughs> it's not that hard. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> the, 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 the only rationale... I mean, at some point in an education, you ought to understand the notion of a multi-step algorithm because of, that's the basis of a lot of things in modern life. Mm -hmm. And the only rationale for using long division is it is a good example... Of a, of a multi-step algorithm that, in fact, uses the place-value system of arithmetic. So using it, teaching it as a way of understanding place-value system and an algorithm makes sense. But you're not teaching it because people use it. Um, you're actually not doing that with even the, the algorithms for multiplication. Because when, we, when we've got a number of more than a couple of digits, every one of us pulls out a calculator sure. because it's just quicker and easier and more accurate. Okay. So even today... The multiplication algorithm is only taught, it's not taught to be used, it's taught to be, to help people understand 
place value system and algorithms. And in fact, one of the things that, that the Common Core has been encouraging is the use not of the classical algorithms, but of algorithms that are much better at helping people understand arithmetic and place value systems. So when you see these posts on Facebook, uh, the way they say, you know, my kid has been taught this weird way of doing yes. multiplication. <laughs> no, that's not what's going on. The kid has been he's really been taught about numbers, place value system and algorithms. And rather than do that with an algorithm that was optimized for computational efficiency in the 13th century, we're saying in the day of calculators today, use an algorithm that better helps people understand uh, place value system and, and, and algorithms. So it's not about, it's no longer about learning a method to do multiplication it's using multiplication to understand the number system i've and actually i've said shift. this yeah. i've said this before a couple of times but uh i've been writing about atheism for like eight years yep. and by far the most popular thing i've ever written is saying exactly what you just said about common core like common core yeah. math isn't the problem it's you don't understand how math yeah, works I, I, and i yeah. read that article that you wrote and it completely made sense because I saw that same dumb thing like, oh, yeah. my kid's yeah. learning this stupid thing. So when you hear yeah. politicians complaining about how Common Core is a bad thing, what is it that they don't get? Everything. All, <laughs> Besides all everything all, all the time. Things. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's many ways of answering that one. I think John Stewart <laughs> would do a better job of that than yeah. I would do it. But, uh, Let me ask you but, a I mean, slightly... The, 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 Okay, go on, yeah. No, I'll ask you a slightly related question, which is yeah. uh, the Khan Academy, something like that. Yeah. that Wait, is what's that? So helpful, like YouTube videos to teach you all these various subjects in school. Oh. One of the criticisms I've heard of Khan Academy is it kind of teaches you computation, rote yeah. mathematics. Is that really helpful for kids? I think rote mathematics, you're not asking me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, what it does is it's a very good, freely available platform for teaching mathematics that was important in the 19th century and earlier, um, but in a sense is no longer important, with one important exception. It actually still is important for people to master a lot of procedures because of the standardized tests. So what stand, what, I mean, what, what, what Salman Khan does, and, and I know him personally, so I, I would like to think he's a friend of mine, uh, although I do critique it, because what he's doing is he's filled a market niche. There is a big niche for people who want to pass exams. And mm. he's managed to find, he's developed a platform that is very good at helping people pass exams, but it's not helping them learn mathematics. It's not about making them mathematicians or mathematically able people. It's about helping them pass mathematics. That's valuable in today's society, but I hope we're going to soon get beyond the fact, the stage where mathematics is about passing these standardized tests because they actually detract from learning mathematics. Mathematics and today is about solving real-world problems that involve novel twists. And that's actually getting more to the heart of what the Common Core standards are all yeah. about. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. There is yeah. Some Common Core is actually mathematics for the 21st century. But there is some value in learning things by rote, right? Like, you can't do the math when it's like, 6 times 10 is... Like, you have to just know that off the top of your head. Like, so there is some value in learning, right? Am I, I think there's some... Completely well, off? Yeah. Yeah, some stuff certainly needs to, it's the same with everything else, you know, you've got some stuff that needs to be mastered. However, um, most of us find that we master the basic stuff when we encounter it repeatedly in a meaningful situation. Learning it to be used tomorrow is not the best way because people don't learn that way. People actually find they master things by repetition when they have to do that repetition in the course of doing something that interests them. Mm. 
I have one yeah, last so yeah, question. You need to master. Yeah, go ahead. I have one last question for you, which is yeah. uh, maybe just because people who are outside the mathematical world wouldn't know this, and I'm, I'm curious too, when professional mathematicians talk about various things that they're working on, maybe like you said, that other branches of math, uh, those people may not be working on, how do they communicate with each other? How do they collaborate <laughs> when they're all doing so many different things? Well, as I mentioned before, even though the specific branches of mathematics have their own arcane uses of language and very specialised, the basic thought processes are essentially the same. A mathematician is a mathematician is a mathematician. So it actually, within the space of half an hour, you can get a pretty good sense of what that person's working on. You may even be able to make a suggestion that helps them solve their problem because you're going to see it in a different way. So it's not as difficult as that to understand what each other's doing in general terms. If, however, I'm sitting next to a mathematician in a different domain who says, here's a proof I've just developed. I'd like you to check this proof for me. I would have to say they would never ask me that because they would know that I wouldn't be able to do it. So in terms of checking the details, you can't do that. But in terms of, you know, it's like like an automobile. I can get into any car and drive it. But if I then have to lift the hood and do some tinkering, the only one I can do is my own car because I got used to it. Yeah. Um, you know, you can you can drive any other vehicle, but you can't sort of go and start fiddling with it and, and, and tuning it and, and tinkering with it. Let me ask one uh, revision yeah. of that same question, which is how yeah. do they physically communicate? I mean, are they literally mm-hmm. let me sit you down and tell you what type of math I'm working on over drinks? Yeah. Over drinks or drinks helps, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or do they have a different are they communicating through their research papers or through blog posts like uh, Terence Tao is doing in a lot of ways? Though that's not maybe to other mathematicians per se. Um, I mean, uh, in terms of sitting down and having drinks, mathematics is one of the quintessential napkin problem uh, <laughs> disciplines. You have to have a napkin. If mathematicians are talking together, sooner or later they're going to have to write on something. Uh, it may be, uh, you know, there's famous cases where they've scribbled things on, 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 on stones, on bridges and things. But you have to have some surface, a blackboard, a whiteboard, a napkin, a piece of paper, uh, the, the back of your hand or whatever, you sooner or later you have to draw symbols. And uh, one of the reasons mathematicians can now collaborate over the internet is because all of the social networking tools now allow us to share diagrams and images mm. and even to work together on a common workspace because working together on a common visual workspace is an extremely powerful tool. Well, thank you so much yeah. for helping us better understand this ridiculously complicated uh, type of subject. We really appreciate absolutely, it. My, absolutely. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much. We'll have all the links in the show notes to some of the stuff we talked about. Um, and yeah, hopefully people will check out how to do math. Thanks for breaking it down for me, Keith. <laughs> I feel like I learned so much. <laughs> my pleasure. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time.